Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. The church and the state need to disagree on asylum seekers. As we all know, Suella Braverman thinks the church is aiding and abetting bogus asylum seekers. The case of the Afghan migrant Abdullah Zaidi, who carried out an acid attack on a woman and her children, and reports that residents of the Bibby Stockholm barge were attending churches nearby, has added fuel to the former Home Secretary's charge that churches are naively supporting the asylum claims of immigrants to the UK. Everyone on the right of British politics seems to have weighed in on the issue, from Nigel Farage to Priti Patel, Robert Jenrick to Melanie Phillips. Now even the left has joined in. Keir Starmer has indicated he would close loopholes for those who falsely claim conversion if he becomes Prime Minister. Quite how he will do that is not explained. I feel personally invested in this story. When I take confirmation services as a bishop, quite regularly these days, among the list of candidates, there will be Iranian or Syrian refugees who have apparently become Christians waiting in line among the 12-year-old school kids, the new parents who want spiritual help in bringing up their children, and the elderly man approaching death who realises he needs to do something he's been putting off for years. I have confirmed several Iranian refugees. I can't look into their heart, or even my own, to guarantee all of them were genuine converts. Yet I have seen their desperation to escape an oppressive regime, and although some may have started out coming to church to improve their chances of asylum, in the process, some of them, at least, have found, to their surprise, real faith. Several that I know have gone on towards ordination in the Anglican Church. If that is a ploy to get past the immigration system, it does seem to be taking things a bit far. It's hard not to think the attack on the church is some kind of retaliation for the bishop's opposition to the government's Rwanda scheme. But underneath this argument, there are deeper issues at play. This dispute is, in reality, another outbreak of the age-old tension between the church and Caesar. In the early days of the church, Roman emperors never really understood Christianity and thought they could use it for the purposes of the Roman Empire, just like they were used to doing with the pagan cults. Yet the Christians had other ideas and higher loyalties. As Augustine put it, the loyalty of the church is ultimately to the city of God rather than the earthly city. And in time, they developed a careful understanding of the way the church related to the state. So when it comes to immigration, the church will always take a different approach from the state. St Paul, in the very early years of the Christian church, wrote, Welcome one another, therefore just as Christ has welcomed you. In the very foundations of the Christian faith was this idea that even though we humans were moral and spiritual vagabonds, 
God has extended us a welcome into his presence. So woe betide any Christian who failed to welcome others into their fellowship if they wanted to join. If the Christian life was a matter of imitating and displaying God's ways in the ordinary business of life, then hospitality became one of the core Christian virtues. As one early Christian writer put it, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. To risk offending an angel, a messenger of God, was a bad idea. The wrath of God is more severe than the wrath of Suella, and the generosity of God is wider than the Home Office. Now, of course, such hospitality could be abused. The New Testament also has warnings about naively welcoming scoundrels who speak falsehood and lies. Do not receive into the house or welcome anyone who comes to you, for to welcome is to participate in the evil deeds of such a person. So the early Christians were told to be on the lookout for fakes, just like clergy today. Walk down a street with a dog collar and you are a magnet for people telling you that they have lost their wallets and could you give them the train fare to visit their dying mother in Newcastle. With these doctrines of sin and the deceitfulness of the human heart, vicars should know more than most that not every claim to charity is genuine. Yet that dose of realism always took place in the context of a presumption to welcome to think the best of people, not the worst, to give people the benefit of the doubt. The state, on the other hand, has a different role. Later political theology developed more nuanced ways of putting it, but it goes back to St Paul's claim that civil authorities are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. It is their job to be suspicious, to investigate fully, to winkle out false claims and to set proper limits, while tempering justice with mercy and be willing to welcome the genuine person in need. And wisdom is found in the tension between the two. It was always a mistake for the church to act like the state, being overly suspicious and critical. It was equally a mistake for the state to act like the church, being overly optimistic about all claims to asylum or innocence. So when asylum seekers turn up at church asking to be baptised, the local vicar should not act like an agent of the state, assuming that they are all bogus just wanting to fiddle the system. She must act out of loyalty to her faith, which tells her to welcome the stranger. The immigration officer, on the other hand, whether he happens to be Christian or not, has to play it differently. Of course, there needs to be proper scrutiny of people's application for asylum. That's why we have an immigration system, and quite right too. But vicars are not immigration officers. Their job is not to start out by doubting motives, but to act out of the welcome of God, even if it draws the ire of the Daily Telegraph. This is the way that church and state should work together, one reminding the other of the kingdom of God, a whole different way of life where welcome and grace take centre stage. The other, conscious of the human tendency to deceive, being rightly cautious. Suella's problem is, at root, a theological one. She hasn't understood the way Christian faith works. 
she hasn't understood the relationship between the church and the state. And let's be honest, sometimes in the past the church has tried to play the role of the state as well, which is equally a mistake. There is an inevitable tension in this relationship, where sometimes the church will believe the state is being too harsh, or the state will believe the church is being too soft, as we have seen in recent times. But it's one of those creative tensions where each side needs the other. Perhaps in other wiser ages, we understood this delicate balance between church and state, and the careful work that went into defining their relationship. Maybe it's time to recognise the role that each plays, not just for the sake of a healthy social life, but for the sake of those people who come to our shores desperately seeking a new life, whether with good motives or bad. Faith, Hope and FOMO by Micah Gray The morning found me sat upright at my work desk between two tasks. One half of me was talking to my colleague and the other was debating the ticket prices on my computer screen. My favourite music group, Salt, had just announced their first ever live show. I was one of the lucky ones who had managed to fight through the ticket queue to get to the point of purchase. The group had put out nine studio albums in the past four years and had never given a single interview nor put out a piece of promotional material that would reveal their identities. I was excited, like so many others, to finally get a glimpse behind the veil. The only problem was that the ticket price was high. Yes, it was my favourite band, but they had never done a live show before. How could I be sure it would be worth the expense. Across social media, others were expressing similar doubts. Salt had never played a live show before. The venue they'd chosen was an abandoned IKEA, hardly the Roundhouse or the Royal Albert Hall. There would be no alcohol at the venue. How were gig-goers supposed to have fun? Given that the band's lyrics often focus on spiritual themes and that high ticket price, was this another case of a religious group trying to financially exploit their followers? While Salt have not professed to be a Christian band, a lot of their lyrics focus on spiritual themes and reference God as Lord. The show itself was called Acts of Faith, after all. By the time I had deliberated and decided that I would take the chance and get the tickets, they were gone. The show had sold out. Three days later, footage from the show began to circulate online. Videos revealed elaborate stage designs, dance sequences, choir performances, a full orchestra, exhibitions, fashion shows and so much more. Testimonies flooded the timeline with it was the show of the year being a common refrain. Many of the doubters came back to say how wrong they were, how the show was worth so much more than the price. How the artists behind Salt were seasoned professionals and this was anything but an amateur performance. How the venue was perfect and any other place would not have worked. How the lack of alcohol didn't matter because there was such a heavenly atmosphere. Scrolling through all the content, I realised how perfect the title Acts of Faith was for this show. 
where there was no assurance that the cost of the show would be worth it, it would have been an act of faith to trust the artists and buy those tickets anyway. It would have been an act of faith to trust their choice of venue, of making it an alcohol-free event. I imagine it would have been an act of faith for the artists themselves too. An act of faith to step out and produce such an elaborate show for the first ever live event. An act of faith to pour all their effort into it without any experience to say that it would work out the way that it did. As I watched this all unfold, I couldn't help but think of how much courage it takes to step out in faith these days. As a trainee psychologist, my studies tell me that faith is a subset of hope, one which is associated with positive mental health and well-being, resilience, coping with anxiety and healthy relationships. Faith tends to have an additive impact on our lives. Doubt, on the other hand, is a protective mechanism that helps us to minimise risk so that we can preserve ourselves, others or our resources. Doubt often works by integrating our past experiences into our present. For instance, those who shared their doubt about the quality of Salt's first live show did so for good reason. Many first artist shows are underwhelming for fans. Spiritual leaders and groups have exploited followers in the past. An old IKEA hasn't historically been the best venue for esteemed musicians. On that evidence, attending the show seemed like it would have just been a loss. However, what actually happened was quite the opposite. Those Salt fans who saw the doubts and uncertainties and still decided to act in faith were able to witness something magical. It reminded me of John, one of the followers of Jesus, who wrote, Blessed are they who have believed but not seen. Sometimes we want to see the evidence of our faith so that we can believe we have good grounds on which to make a decision, and that is wise. But sometimes... Faith asks us to go beyond our wisdom, to go beyond our lived experiences, and to be open to something new that we haven't yet seen. Of course, not all acts of faith work out the way that Salt's first show did. Sometimes we step out in faith and rather than having our hopes realised, we are met with disappointment. We are met with our fears coming true and met with risks that become real losses. Though those moments can be deeply painful, we can at least be glad that we had the courage and ability to hope at all. Those moments remind us that sometimes the act of faith is the end in itself. They remind us that it is not about the reward of faith, but about keeping the flame of hope alive underneath it. Though I won't be able to look back years from now and say I was at Salt's first show, as I would have liked to, thanks to the password I couldn't recall, I can look back and say that morning where I was sat at my desk between the faith and doubt taught me a valuable lesson. Faith is not the absence of doubt, but the ability to see beyond it, to choose beyond it. In 2024, I think that's a lesson worth holding on to. Northern Ireland's imminent danger is distraction by Andy Flanagan.
Should you be listening to this podcast right now? Are you meant to be working? Perhaps you're working from home with the glorious freedom that brings. Forgive me for judging, but it's just that I know myself all too well. Dear listener, I must confess to you that in the course of writing this article, I have already cut away to cricket scores or my fascinating chess match with Covid chess fan 34 more than a few times. We are an increasingly distractible people. But you're here now, so whether you landed here through word of mouth or social media, you are welcome. Much as you would, I'm sure, love me to deconstruct yours and my individual psychology and boundaries, my hopefully more important point here is that distraction also operates at a political level. It's a frustrating few years for the people of Northern Ireland, which, when placed on top of the devastating history of the last 50 years, seems a tad cruel. Just when the Good Friday Agreement seemed to have pulled off a miraculous balancing act on the high wire of a divided island with contested history, Brexit came along to throw off Northern Ireland's centre of gravity. It was, in fact, thrown off to such an extent that Northern Ireland was left just trying to cling on, balance and survive, rendering no forward progress possible. Sadly, the circus metaphor seems appropriate in more ways than one. Given that context, you may appreciate how the people of Northern Ireland felt this week when Prime Minister Rishi Sunak flew into Belfast and attempted to educate them. He urged the newly formed Northern Ireland executive to focus on things that matter rather than constitutional change with hospital waiting lists that rival Sierra Leone and some roads that rival, well, Sierra Leone, I think that folks in Northern Ireland get that things that matter are the things that matter. Of course, what the Prime Minister is talking about is Northern Ireland's obsession with the elephant in the room, the border, or the desired removal of it. We don't just talk about the elephant in the room. We study her in minute detail. We build brand new scientific devices just to study her. So, to be fair to the Prime Minister, don't get distracted by the border is, at a surface level, an important thing to hear. Especially as Northern Ireland's new First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, has not been shy about putting a united Ireland firmly on the agenda in her first days in office. But what has greeted the good people of Northern Ireland is that this sermon, to not be distracted by constitutional change, was delivered by one of the chief exponents of Brexit, the biggest constitutional upheaval for Northern Ireland in a generation. The time spent and the regulatory gymnastics involved in trying to do a job of Brexit damage limitation for Northern Ireland has sucked the political energy and life out of these last seven years in Belfast and beyond. None of us enjoy condescension. It is that annoying thing that happens when people know more about a subject than we do and lord it over us. But what the people of Northern Ireland have had to endure in this last decade is being lectured by the Jacob Rees-Moggs of this world about the wonders of Brexit, when it became patently clear to most Northern Irish folks that not only had the particular challenges of Northern Ireland not been fully considered, but that even senior Brexit-supporting politicians didn't actually understand the logistics 
how Northern Ireland currently operated within the EU. Condescension from someone that knows more than you is challenging, but condescension from someone who knows less than you do, really great. And that's only the nuts and bolts we're talking about. Probably more detrimental was the ignorant blind spot around identity and psychology that was exposed. A palpable lack of knowledge was exposed regarding how the Good Friday Agreement, combined with EU membership, had created a remarkable safe space in Northern Ireland, where people who wanted to feel Irish could feel Irish, and people who wanted to feel British could feel British. Condescension feels even worse when it seems that people don't understand your circumstances or care about you. So, I put it to you that the consequences of distraction can be large. Those of us with Irish DNA need to hear the challenge that our obsession with the border has led us not to loving our neighbour as ourselves and stolen decades of healthy existence from our island. But might it be wise to at least consider that the distraction of Brexit has stolen and may continue to steal decades of focus on climate change, strengthening family life, healthcare, immigration, economic justice, international peace building and maintaining local service provision from local councils. In short, things that matter. The temptation is to see distractions as whimsical, temporary things. We think, ah, oh, that quick scroll through Facebook or Instagram may make me less efficient, but it won't kill me. But that is exactly how temptation works. If you believe in an invisible battle between good and evil, and I do, then there are some dynamics that are worth considering. If there is a person or an impersonal force tempting me, then it is unlikely to tempt me to do things that are socially and culturally inappropriate in my world. I'm not likely to be tempted to murder someone this morning, that would be an inefficient tempting strategy. But it would appear from the state of the world that whoever is in charge of tempting is actually quite good at it. That's why I believe we are more usually tempted not to swing dramatically one way or the other, but by a small shift of the needle. Just a little bit more than the day before. Not tempted to kill someone, but tempted to score that point in a social media discussion. Not tempted to rob a bank, but tempted to creatively adjust small increments in our tax reporting. Not tempted to commit adultery, but tempted to linger too long in a conversation or on a website. The force or forces of darkness are not idiots. They don't waste time, for most of us, tempting us with the big stuff. In short, they try to distract us. Just a little wander off the main path. Won't hurt anyone, won't take up much time. Except that habits form and unhealthy practices and opinions start to solidify. And ever so subtly, the wheels may start to come off. Multiply that by a few million people and a whole country can end up hacking through the gorse and bushes rather than driving on the track. Sure. A marriage can be patched up after an innocent distraction becomes a porn addiction, but there will be wounds and scars. We need to acknowledge and repent to allow healing. 
the people of Northern Ireland know all too well that real reconciliation needs the hard yards of repentance and forgiveness. My prayer for the new Northern Ireland executive is that they can avoid further distractions and keep the main thing the main thing. At present, only 7% of young people in Northern Ireland attend an integrated school. That means that the vast majority of people are growing up not getting to know kids from the other side of the religious divide. In that vacuum, the fear, ignorance and prejudice can fester. Our own secret apartheid. That would be one place to start. Speaking of which, get back to work. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined. 